have in my hand a list of 50. No, I don't. I have in my hand the 1776 report. The president's advisory 1776 commission wrapped up its uh, first work last week. And its executive director happens to be the dean of the Hillsdale Graduate School in Washington, D.C., our friend Matt Spaulding. He was the executive director of the 1776 commission. And he joins me this morning in the Hillsdale Dialogue, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale collected at hillsdale.edu, including all the Hillsdale Dialogues dating back eight years. Good morning, Dean Spaulding. Good morning, Hugh. It seems like it's been a year since I spoke to you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. I uh, I just put out a meme of a guest host at the uh, Hillsdale Dialogue, which may disturb you a little bit. It's, it's Bernie. I'm using the, uh, the Bernie meme to tell people. Uh-huh. I, I won't actually do that, but I want to reverse what our plan was. Our plan was to quickly talk about the constitutional issues associated with impeachment of the president and then to move to the 1776 commission. I want to talk about the commission in the first segment and then turn to constitutional issues in two, three, and four because they are pressing. And by the time we get there, most members of the Senate will be en route to their offices and they listen to this show. And I want them to hear why they have to stand tall on impeachment and on the filibuster from you, Matt. Right. Uh, are you okay with that approach? That's, that's fine. You're, it's your show, you. Well, no, it's actually the Hillsdale Dialogue, so it's your show. But I, I want to talk with the commission and begin by getting people to read it rather than people's reviews of it. So how do they find the 1776 report? Well, look, as, as, as you know, this um, uh, was created by executive order. We created The commission was created. We've been working and having meetings. It was re- released on Monday for Martin Luther King Day. Uh, but the commission was abolished by President Biden in one of his first actions, and it was removed. So it's not publicly available on the White House website. But it is, and there is a Trump Archive website, uh, there is a Hillsdale website, the Heritage Foundation, the Federalist, uh, Real Clear Politics, uh, the, uh, the Claremont Institute. Various places have put it up. Uh, it's even actually been circulating around on TikTok and other, other sources, uh, so I encourage people to read it. The criticisms really I have little to do, if anything, with what's actually inside the document. It's, uh, it's to be read. It was not written for academic historians. It was written for the American people. Uh, and a request from the president to explain why 1776 is important in our history and what role it plays. Uh, and that's what we've, we've done here. I think I was always... Struck by whether I should be shocked that, that, that a president of the United States would abolish a 1776 commission, uh, or am I kind of honored and flattered that in one of the first actions it was abolished by by the new president? I think it's, it's astonishing. It's astonishing. It's Matt. They are yes. so anti-intellectual. I, I would have thought had they wanted to, they might have impaneled a new commission to answer. But rather, because this is actually in response to the 1619 project that the 1776 Commission was formed, the report is traditionalist, and I thought a response would have been better, but to attempt to erase from history is Orwellian. Well, so I think it struck a nerve for, for two reasons. One is, in a number of point, people have pointed this out, uh, the 1776 Commission uh, defends the principles of 1776, the principles of the Declaration, that all men are created equal, as a truth, as a truth at the center of our of our society and our national existence. That threw off a lot of uh, the critics, especially the New York Times and other places, the professional historians. 
But the other thing it did was it raised a distinction between the defense of rights uh, as the, that we bear as individuals uh, under the laws of nature and nature's God, as opposed to group rights. And it talked about different uh, the problem with that, and it defended individual rights in the name of the founders and uh, Abraham Lincoln, who's kind of our guide to this report, and especially Martin Luther King. And we drew that distinction as opposed to group rights, which, of course, is what John C. Calhoun went to, ultimately to defend slavery, and what we are seeing more and more with this turn to rights based on ethnicity or race or sex. That's not to say that all the problems caused by those things were equally barbaric or dehumanizing as slavery was. So, but, but in principle, these things are, are outliers as opposed to the, the, the grander tradition, the great tradition, 1776. I think that struck a nerve, which is why they had to abolish it on day one and remove it from the website. Uh, again, the, as Winston learned in 1984, the memory hole exists in totalitarian regimes. And totalitarian regimes manage history, as the Chinese Communist Party is presently managing history at a velocity that astonishes. That's the most illiberal thing they could have done. They did many illiberal things. They threw people out of work on the Keystone XL pipeline. They, they did many illiberal things on their first day. But the most illiberal was to abolish that with which they disagreed. No, I, I think that's right. There was no engagement of the argument. The two-year commission, we would have happily continued uh, to engage with them. Um, but they just, just kind of abolish it and, and, and erase it, I think, was a mistake, which, among other things, brought even more attention to the report. Thank you very much. Um, uh, and we'll, we'll continue making these arguments. You can get rid of the commission, but you can't get rid of this history, and you can't get rid of these principles. Uh, but it does have to be engaged. It does sort of encapsulate what is going on in academia today and in many secondary schools and even primary grades, which is there is no presentation of the argument. It is you will be made to agree time in America. And that is deeply troubling. Well, so look, the, 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 the problem with modern history, whether it's 1619 or revisionist historians or Howard Zinn, is that really is a form of ideology. It's, it's, it's a, here's the history we want you to know. All it is is the bad parts. All it is is the negative parts. And it's a systemic problem. It's all bad. That's, that's at the very least a one-sided story. What, what the commission actually argues for is an honest, accurate history. History warts and all. Because when you study the bad parts of your history, you actually learn that your history, despite those flaws, your country is still lovable uh, because of these noble aspirations. That's how Martin Luther King read the history. That's how Lincoln read the history. That's how the suffragettes and the early civil rights movement, every great reform movement in America, looks back to those principles because they're true about the human condition. That doesn't mean we're perfect and, and without flaws. That doesn't mean we always lived up to them. But it means that those are the things that should guide us to reject those things, to push them aside, in favor of a, a history that's a backwards history that ignores those things, I think is a is a tragedy in terms of how history is, is taught, but also misses the most important thing that defines this country and its whole existence. It's it's it, we are robbing students of, of, of the greatest thing we have to offer them, which is the true aspects of American history.
So, Dean Spaulding, we have a minute and a half. Would you give people the quick summary of how the report came to be written? And we will return to it next week in detail. I want people to read it and be prepared for it. But how did it come to be written? Well, so there was, a, there was an executive order in November. Um, that, that he, call, he actually called for it in September, executive order in November. Uh, December, uh, I, came, I took a leave of absence from Hillsdale, so I would, there would be no conflict of interest here. We create a commission. The commission meets, um, starts exchanging, uh, sending in ideas and components, which I collected. Uh, we met again to, to approve a report. So this was prepared in a month's time on very short order. Um, it was not a multi-year uh, report. It wasn't intended to be. It was intended to be a statement. Uh, it's an advisory to the president. More importantly, it was really meant to be a marker put down for the American people in this much larger debate. That's what it really was intended for, and it really pulls together on uh, the, the knowledge of a lot of these uh, great commissioners. Uh, our own uh, Larry Arn, as you know, was the chair. Carol Swain was the vice chair. But, you know, Victor Davis Hanson, Charles Kessler, myself. Uh, it's a great group of individuals, and this argument really is nothing, um, in, on one hand, it's really nothing groundbreaking at all. It's making a just straightforward argument about what are those principles, what do they mean to us as a people, and what are the great challenges to those, both at home, uh, obviously slavery was a great challenge to them, but abroad, uh, fascism and communism clearly denied humanity, and then today, the move towards identity politics, unclear where it's going in many ways, but it's really changing how we look at history, but also reintroducing this, these are about group rights, which we think take us in the wrong direction. So I want everybody to go and get, I, I just tweeted out one of the many links to the commission report that Team Biden is attempting to erase in fine 1984 style. We will spend all of next week on it. But in the next three segments, we're going to talk about the impeachment of former officials and about the filibuster, because we know the senators are en route to work. And Matt Spaulding knows this stuff. Stay tuned. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue on The Hugh Hewitt Show. If and when news happens anywhere, you'll hear it here first. First. When Hugh Hewitt continues. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue has begun, sponsored by Hillsdale College. Once a week, we go very high on important issues. The 1776 report. I am going to uh, uh, tweet out a link. Uh, Matt, would you say, Dean Matt Spalding is my guest, would you say that the Biden administration's rush to erase the report is a capitulation to the left and an assault on the free exchange of ideas? <laughs> Uh, very, very, very much so. I think that the report struck a nerve, um, and there's a there's a passing reference to the president's inaugural address to uh, 1619 as being the first call of justice to this nation, um, and the fact that it was one of the first top 12 executive orders issued was to abolish the commission. Absolutely, and the reaction, however, which I find just appalling, is the the natural reaction was to abolish the commission, remove the report. It's not going to be printed, even though it's a government document, uh, and to try to erase it. I'm just, I'm just amazed by that. 
which of course means the report has a very, very healthy and dynamic life out there among the American people in the underground on websites, uh, being exchanged. It's even on TikTok. It's, uh, it's, given it, it's given it a new life, a continuing life, which of course is what we want to do and continue having these discussions. This is yeah. the idea is, is now about, about what America means. The, the idea is abroad, and so I've just tweeted out a link to the Hillsdale College link to the 1776 report. I would encourage everyone to go, download it, send it around, and prepare for next week's conversation with Dean Spaulding and hopefully President Arn about it. Now, uh, Dean Spaulding, because members of the Senate are going to be gathering to discuss mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. continuing to conference about two things, the trial of President Trump and the filibuster. Let's begin with the trial of President Trump. I have directed people to Judge Littig, to Alan Dershowitz, to the plain meaning of the Constitution. I believe it is unconstitutional. What say you? I, I, I think it is not only unconstitutional as a legal matter, I think it is uh, really a violation of the whole concept of, of the rule of law. Uh, the, the, uh, the intent of having impeachment in the Constitution, we have to back up and think here for a moment, this was a new idea that uh, develops in Western civilization, especially in American uh, constitutional law. It's there so that the legislative branch is a check on the executive branch, uh, and the executive can't get away with whatever it wants. But you have to remember that it's also a check on the legislative branch itself. That is, some states and other countries had uh, unlimited powers of the legislative branch to uh, to find anybody guilty of anything. They're called bills of attainder, private laws to to uh, criminalize individuals. Um, the, the, the balance here, the, the result, the constitutional check and balance was what we call impeachment. It's intended to remove somebody from office, remove and have other punishments, but it was never intended. Indeed, it, it, it specifically rejected the idea of adding other things to it or, or things that would allow the legislative branch to deal with essentially their political enemies. You can't do something to prevent somebody from running from office. That's the power of the American people and their voting uh, power. You can't go after your political enemies. You can't go after uh, those with whom you disagree. If you could, can you imagine what would have happened in the, in the time of the Jeffersonians or the... Oh, my gosh. Uh, it, it's know. crazy. Let me, let me quickly get from you. The 14th Amendment is subsequent, of course, to the Constitution and guarantees due process to every American citizen. Do you think that it has any play in this conversation about impeachment? Because I do. Well, it, 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 it does now. It, it didn't uh, some number of days ago. Remember what the, what, the, what the question or the, the idea of due process means. It means the process to which you are due under the particular circumstances. One of the intentions of impeachment is that if we are facing a national emergency and, and someone needs to be removed from office, it can be done extremely quickly because that's a power the legislature is given. It's a political question. You can remove them immediately. However, here's the dilemma. He's no longer in office, which means he's a private citizen. As a private citizen, he has full due process rights. Exactly. It does matter. Exactly. And he cannot be tried by the Senate. I'll be right back with Dean Matt Spaulding. They're going to try and try him anyway, but he should not be tried as we talk next about the filibuster. Stay tuned, America.
non-stop action-packed information blitz the hugh hewitt show is coming right back welcome back america to hewitt thank you so much for listening today, the Hillsdale Dialogue is underway with Dean Matt Spaulding of the Hillsdale Graduate School in Washington, D.C. Dean Spaulding and I are about to discuss, we're going to get into the tall weeds of the Constitution. Article 1, which commits the rules of the Senate to the Senate to decide. And in those rules is a procedure about impeachment. And on the floor now is the discussion about whether or not, not impeachment, on the filibuster, and on the floor right now is a discussion on whether or not to modify those rules. So, Dean Spaulding, if you were going to set this up for a graduate seminar at the uh, Kirby Center in Washington, D.C., what would you describe mm-hmm. the stakes as being? Well, the, the first thing I would point out is that the United States Senate is a particular body. It's one half of our Congress. And it, it is not a majoritarian body in the same way say, the House of Representatives is. It's a body of, uh, of rules, rules because the senators there, therein represent states. It works slightly different. So we need to keep that in the back of our mind. It's, it's not as straightforward as we might assume or hope that it, it would be, number one. And number two, I would point out that the Senate is actually split 50-50. Uh, the vice president who is in charge of the Senate can break that tie for the 51 vote, in this case, the new vice president. But the senators themselves are split 50-50. In those circumstances, there has to be some sort of uh, procedure or rule agreement uh, between both parties for the, for the institution to operate as a rules-based institution. <clears throat> so I, I would uh, point out those things first. The other thing is that we think about the, the long history of the Senate and what the filibuster rule actually is, is there for and allows for. It's not been there forever, but it does continue a, 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 a process, if you will, that is, I think, an essence of the Senate, which is the, the Senate, because it's rules-based and not majoritarian in the same way, is a deliberative body in which states, through the individual senators, always have a say in the process, and you can't ramrod things through. The filibuster rule is a particular rule meant to protect that so that if a senator objects or some small number of senators objects, you can't merely do things with 51 votes. you got to get a supermajority. That forces the Senate to deliberate about something and actually only proceed if there is a national consensus. Um, right now, right now, the Senate really represents, I think, where the, where the nation is, split right down the middle. Remember, Republicans picked up uh, seats in the House. They picked up some uh, state legislatures, governorships. Uh, the Senate really is now split 50-50. This is not unitary control of one party in the way we would assume, say, during the New Deal, when it was overwhelmingly one party. This is very divided. There's got to be an agreement about how that division works, and they've got to have uh, rules because a 50-50 Senate means that the committees are split 50-50. So you've got to have agreement. Well, part of that agreement, uh, uh, Mitch McConnell has said, which has always been the case, is that part of that agreement is is when you're split 50-50, no one party is going to use the process to ram their agenda through. 
using a vice president's vote to break a tie. That means maintaining the filibuster. And I think that's an absolute necessity where we are right now, which is a very divided nation in which um, no one has a mandate, no party has a mandate, especially not a, a, a new majority, which is actually a 50-50 majority with a vice president, breaking a tie in which the presidential election was not really a mandate either. So, so Dean, Dean Spaulding, though, I want to make sure people understand uh, the Constitution is silent on the filibuster. Uh, the fact that the Senate has practiced it for more than 100 plus years, it is an extra constitutional rule of the Senate adopted under the Senate's explicit authority to make its own rules. But if they were to jettison it, they would not be acting unconstitutionally. So it is a prudential question. Am I correct? That's correct. Um, but uh, it is absolutely clear that each body, the House and the Senate, can make its own rules. But they should make their own rules, and they always have made their own rules, indeed prior to the filibuster, according to the nature of the institution and according to the circumstances. Hence, it's prudential. Well, the prudential judgment right now is twofold. One is the nature of the institution is deliberative, states, um, and you want to preserve. It's always been about preserving the rights of the minority to participate in debate. And um, at number two, we are precisely, in the form of the Senate, a 50-50 nation. And under those circumstances, it would be imprudent uh, for either party to use that circumstance to their advantage, which is why you have something like the filibuster in the first place, to preserve the nature of the Senate as, in, as a deliberative body. Now, in the past, and I don't know if you agree with me or not, but uh, we'll find out. I have always argued <laughs> against uh, the filibuster on nominees because the Senate is explicitly called upon to give advice and consent. And the Senate means the Senate as a whole. Uh, and when they adopted the rule for a filibuster on nominees, I believe they were departing from that rule that the Senate vote on nominees. And therefore, I was not sad to see Harry Reid pull the trigger on the nuclear option. And that, that has been, there is no filibuster anymore on nominees, nor do I think there should be because the Senate is uh, Constitution is explicit that the Senate's supposed to do it, but they are allowed to have any rules they want regarding legislative procedure. Now, you've given one rule, one argument for retaining the filibuster. There's another one I want to speak to, which uh, I'd elicit your view on. We should not become a pendulum society, meaning that transitory majorities ought not to be able to work massive changes quickly. And if we move to a non-filibustered legislature, we will, as Steve Kornacki confirmed in the last hour, end up with transitory majorities making major changes in fundamental law that is not con unconstitutional. And that is so destabilizing, Matt Spaulding. People are, have no idea what that would mean over the course of 20 years. Not two, but 20. Do you agree with that? No, I, I, I agree. I'll, I mean, I'll make Two points. One is, I, I agree with your point. There's a distinction, a, a constitutional, but also just a, an obvious distinction between nominees, where, the, where it's based on the, on the power, advice, and consent, and legislation. So I, I completely agree with you that. When it comes to legislative matters, that's different. Uh, and I actually agree with your point about not wanting to be a pendulum society. And uh, that follows directly from my point earlier, which is the Senate is a deliberative body. Uh, and implicit in that, or, or the other thing I guess I thought I would explain in my Hillsdale class is, well, we have two chambers in the Congress. 
and they both were understood to play different roles, and they both had the legislative power, and they both got to agree. The House, by having shorter terms, is a majoritarian body, and by having two terms of, or excuse me, short terms, and it's constantly being reelected, is much more representative of popular opinion. The, the waves of popular opinion come into the House, push legislation, um, and, and send them over to the Senate. But the Senate, as I believe, the famous quote from, I think it was Jefferson, right, is to take that cup of hot tea and cool it. Uh, it's to check the House so that the passions of the House are then filtered through the delib- this deliberative body of the Senate to prevent it from the legislative branch as a whole from merely reacting to partisan uh, passions, passions of the moment, uh, an immediate short-term election. Uh, and as a result, the, the Senate has to continue playing that role if you're going to have this whole idea of there being two chambers of the legislative branch so that any legislation that ultimately goes to the desk of the president is now something for which there actually is not merely an immediate majority, but a settled majority. And that's, that's well, this is one of the great examples in which the, the ways in which the Constitution, I think, really encourages and shapes by its structure uh, more deliberative democracy, more more kind of settled good government. Um, and, and yes, if you turn the Senate nearly into the House, which is a second majoritarian body, now they'll just compete with each other about how quickly they can respond to the popular moment. So, so let me ask right. you to consider, and, and we'll do this in this segment and the next segment, what will the immediate and the medium-term of the country look like if the legislative filibuster is abolished and what will it look like if it's retained? Well, I, I think the, um, if it's, if it's retained, I think we will see, uh, partisan, um, uh, battles on the Hill. They're not going to go away. There are other things that might uh, be used. Uh, and they might turn to a uh, budget reconciliation to push some things through. There will be fights over all the things we would expect here. And what will happen naturally, which I think is the best outcome, is that we will approach the next midterm election in which the Senate majority will now be up for debate again. And if the American people, who have the uh, ultimate power here, decide they like the direction of the country, they will give the Democratic Party more senators. If they don't like the direction of the Democratic Party, they will give the Republicans more senators. That's the way it's supposed to work. If you get rid of the filibuster, on the other hand, I think we will see a massive attempt to push a lot of things through before the next election. That is to say, before the American people have a say in the matter, big legislation, spending, um, perhaps we go back to questions about what to do about packing the Supreme Court. Perhaps you can add states quickly. Who knows? It's now an open uh, question because the Senate is no longer there to check the immediate passions of the moment. And once you remove that, Anything is on the table, and that's, I think that's a problem now, but think about this in the long run when, when this comes back to flip to the other party or the shoes on the other foot. Uh, that's precisely why the sense there. I think that's why this needs to be preserved for the sake of that comity of, of, of good legislation and balance and the separation of powers, all the things, the framework which has allowed, allowed this kind of rule of law, which right now is so important. I would also point out it will diminish the power of every state if the filibuster is abolished that is smaller 
than the larger states. Their, their guarantee of equal representation is in the Senate, and in the Senate, the guarantee of their importance magnified is the filibuster. We would just become a hastier, uh, to quote the ants from Lord of the Rings, we'd become a very hasty society. When we come back, I'm going to ask Dean Spaulding to examine Joe Manchin's commitment not to abolish the filibuster and to not pack the Supreme Court and to not do a number of things and consider whether or not he can, having made that commitment, in good conscience, support a resolution that organizes the Senate that does not retain the filibuster. And I have a new affiliate in Clarksburg, West Virginia. I hope you listen to this next segment because it's a question of what did Senator Manchin promise? We'll talk about that after the break. This is The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Joe Manchin promised on November the 9th the following. I commit to you tonight, and I commit to all of your viewers and everyone else that's watching, I want to allay those fears. I want to rest those fears for you right now, because when they talk about whether it will be packing the courts or ending the filibuster, I will not do that. I will not vote to pack the courts, and I will not vote to end the filibuster. Uh, Close quote. Uh, Matt Spaulding, Dean of Hillsdale College and the Hillsdale Dialogue. Can Joe Manchin vote for an organizing resolution that does not protect the filibuster if Mitch McConnell lays that resolution on the table as the alternative to what are the current rules? Yeah, I I don't see how he can, and uh, I don't think he should, uh, based not only on this sentiment here, but for his own self-interest. The alternative here is if it's not in that rule is the first time this comes up in a major piece of legislation in which there's massive pressure, uh, he's going to be put on the spot. And why he would want to put himself at that spot, I, I, I really don't know. I mean, look, if, if he understands this to be important, then the uh, the, the rule here the, at the beginning of the, of the session is, is what matters, because that's when the, uh, the Senate makes its rules at the beginning of the session. Uh, that, that is the key point. That's exactly what I was hoping you were saying without my eliciting it. When Mitch McConnell says we've got to make the rules now and they say, no, we'll we'll cross that bridge later. Joe Manchin can't say I'll cross that bridge later because he committed to cross it now. That's right. Well, but also he can't not take a position now because the Senate will vote on its rules. So he will either vote to end the filibuster or not. Uh because either it's in there, which is say it's an, it's an, it's a rule of the Senate, which is constantly repassed at the beginning of every session. Either it's in there or it's not. This is not a matter of, of the Republicans trying to put something in there which is not already there and it's not been there. The question is whether it's going to be written in a way that's that's kind of uh, so nebulous that they can drop it later. But technically speaking, I mean the, the rules are passed at the beginning of the session, every session, and later what happens is they are quote unquote reinterpreted. Right, the Senate doesn't vote on its rules again. This is what's happened with it; uh, these things from the past. They go to a uh, they go to the chair for some sort of reading on what it means. Uh, but the debate here really is the beginning of the session. Indeed, so I, I would actually go so far uh, with Mr. Manchin. I mean, he's he's you know said very clearly 
where he's at. He's he's in a state in which uh, this can't be a a strong position to to flip on um, or to to change on it, it away from that. He's trying to protect the the voting authority of uh, the state of West Virginia in the Senate. Um, he should go further, I think, and say that. He will not caucus with a party which does not protect the filibuster and which does not say they won't pack the Supreme Court. That would be the logical thing. Historically, that's what's always happened in the past. Why would you caucus and give your vote? Uh, So, for instance, if it's a 50-50 split and this deal does not include the protection of the filibuster, he should withdraw his vote from that majority. He can go independent. Now, his response would be, if if he, one response in his defense would be, I will preserve the filibuster when anyone attempts to end it, but the rules that we are proposing to adopt are silent. Therefore, I'm not breaking my commitment because they're the same rules that were adopted when the Senate was last 50-50, and those rules did not include an explicit guarantee of the filibuster. To which I would respond, we know, you know facts matter. History has happened. We know the nuclear option has been deployed to change the rules of the Senate the first time ever by Harry Reid in 2013. So we know that option is before us. So making explicit that which was implicit is, in fact, consistent with your promise, which is more persuasive, Matt. Correct. No, I I, I think it has to be made uh, explicit. Uh, It's consistent with the history. It's consistent with what he he has said. And they do. This is when they do rules. This is the moment. It has to be explicit now, because if it's not explicit, then it's actually implicit that it's going away. That's that's exactly what it means. That's exactly where the discussion has been set up, and it needs to be clarified now. And I think any responsible legislator, not just Mr. Manchin, but every one of them, any responsible legislature needs to clarify that in the rules. The Senate is a, a rule-based organization, and these things really do matter if the rule of law matters. The, so the problem with so much of what's going on today is is the words don't mean what they actually say. Well, in this case, they actually do mean something. And we should be really thinking twice about what exactly is in those rules, what it says. And Mr. Manchin especially, who's been very clear here, needs to be very clear about that and make sure it clearly represents uh, what he thinks, along with a lot of other people in the Senate, to preserve that. Otherwise, this whole thing is going to blow up in a very messy way that I think all the sides are going to reject uh, uh, look bad in all sides, and they're probably going to uh, uh, wish that hadn't happened in, in the past. Leader McConnell, I hope you continue to take your principled stand, that your caucus supports you in it, and that uh, Senator Manchin goes along with his given word. Matt Spaulding, thank you. The Hillsdale Dialogue will be back next week to discuss in detail the 1776 report and why it caused Joe Biden to invoke the memory of George Orwell and memory all it. I'm going to go join First Look at the Washington Post, America. Join me there next. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Harley. And thank you, Dwayne. I'll talk to you Monday on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. But you absolutely, positively need the truth. This is where you turn. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show.